Hello, everyone. You are listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I am joined today by my friend and colleague, Ryan Shields, an associate professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Hello, Erin, and hello, audience. Happy to be here. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for joining me. Are you ready to dig into episode two of our recap of the 29th Annual European Congress of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, a.k.a. ECMID? So ready. (laughs) Me too. I can't (laughs) wait. In episode one, we talked about our biggest takeaways from the conference, which included the presentations of two major trials. So data from ASPECT-NP, which is ceftolozane, tazobactam, in ventilated pneumonia, and then CAMERA-2, which was combination therapy for staph aureus bacteremia. In that discussion, we also talked about the significant impact that social media has had on academic conferences lately and how data is readily disseminated in today's day and age, even prior to these data being published. So to start this episode, let's kind of flip it, Ryan. What do you think was the hidden gem that you found at ECMID that no one shared on Twitter, that you didn't see on social media, that's just completely off the radar that you think is like the nerdiest and the coolest, most random session you've went to. And I'm sure it's way over everyone's head and only you understood it because you're really, really smart. All right. I have to break the rules because I did share this on Twitter, but, and people actually liked it. So now I have a feeling oh, really? that I have I don't followers. think I liked it. Probably not. Yeah. Somebody else in the nine, my 19 followers liked <laughs> I it. I don't know that I saw the. <laughs> okay. So. This was, uh, this was a really cool session I went to that talks all about the integration of multi-omics data to, to unravel antimicrobial resistance mechanisms. And we're ID clinical pharmacists, right? So when we start thinking about omics, transcriptomics, proteomics, we're like, whoa, I'm going to go over here to the clinical trials late breaker session. But this is one I forced myself to go to, and I'm really glad I did. So this was a symposium presentation, and you can watch this online. And the concept here is all about what can you do with omics data that help unravel antimicrobial resistance. And I think we have to think about this in the context of rapid diagnostic tests. We're all incorporating these into our centers, and we all have a good sense of what rapid genotypic genotypic tests do for us, right? We know there's some organisms where the genotype very well predicts the mechanism of resistance. MECA for MRSA, maybe at CTXM and ESBLs, you kind of can link the gene to the, to the resistance phenotype. But certainly the one black hole or maybe the, the gorilla in the room that's always problematic is pseudomonas. And that's a big problem with both genotypic and sometimes phenotypic tests, what to do with pseudomonas. And so if you extend this even further and you say, well, maybe I'll just sequence the entire genome. Everybody can do whole genome sequencing now, and maybe that will help predict what's going on with pseudomonas. And I, I want to point your attention to a very nice paper that Sam Shelburne and Sam Aiken published in CID in 2017 that gets at this question. Can you use whole genome sequence data then to predict your phenotype and p- predict your resistance pattern? So I won't spoil the results of that paper, but I w- do want to get back to pseudomonas because this is going to be a continual problem. So this group that presented these data uh, in this symposium is a group from Germany that really did an incredibly robust study of 459 clinical strains of pseudomonas. And what they did is they took these clinical strains and they did a number of things to gather data, first of which they sequenced everything. They did whole genome sequence and got good genomic data on everything. They secondly did transcriptomics, where they looked at gene expression. And we know certainly for things like efflux pumps or maybe derepression of AMPC, the amount of gene expression is really important in predicting the phenotype. 
And then finally, they did they characterized the phenotypes. Not only did they did drug susceptibility testing, they looked at cell morphology, they looked at growth of these pseudomonas isolates in biofilms, and they also looked at virulence in a waxworm model. And they put all of these data together and used machine learning to decide, well, which pieces of information fit together to ultimately describe some of these patterns in pseudomonas originosa. So I want to point your attention to just a couple examples and a couple of takeaways from, from this study. One of the cool things that they did is they linked all of these omics data, transcriptomics and, and genomics, to virulence. And I think this is so cool because oftentimes when we're thinking about pseudomonas, we're thinking, is it a colonizing organism or is it causing infection? Are they dying from pseudomonas or with pseudomonas? Uh, and this was a really nice piece of this puzzle where they looked at every single gene in pseudomonas, more than 6,000 genes, and they linked every single one of those genes to some virulence characteristic. So then they could associate certain genes that had, were associated with very high virulence rates, the presence or absence of said genes, um, or very low virulence characteristics. So I think this is a cool way to look at pseudomonas. And they've also developed this awesome integrative, uh, integrative uh, uh, database where you can go to a database called Bactome. This is a reference database. It's available online. That's Bactome, B-A-C-T-O-M-E. You can plug in your favorite gene, and it's going to tell you if that gene's associated with virulence, if it's associated with biofilm, and you can learn something about your favorite gene in Pseudomonas, which, hey, let's admit, who doesn't want to do that on a Friday night? But the big piece with Pseudomonas that we're all interested in is, can you predict drug resistance based on this omics data? So they tested five drugs, colistin, cipro, tobramycin, ceftazidime, and meropenem, and across this collection, about a third of their isolates they studied were multi-drug resistant. And they linked all of this phenotype data to all of their omics data. So they linked the phenotype to whole genome sequence data, they linked it to transcriptomics, and they linked it to some of these phenotypes that we're talking about. And I think what's important about the, the omics to phenotype transition is not only did they look for the gene presence or absence, which is typically what we're doing now with rapid diagnostic tests, right? We say if the gene is there or if it's not there. They did gene presence or absence, but they also looked for mutations in the genes or single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, as well as insertions and deletions in the genes. So some sort of mutation in the gene, did that associate with resistance? And then they also looked at expression. And for each of these drugs, they found, well, what's the best predictor of resistance? And in fact, they found for ceftazidime, it's in fact not the, com it's the combination of both gene presence and absence and expression data that best predicts resistance phenotypes. Same with tobramycin and meropenem, again, combination of gene presence and absence plus the expression data. Interestingly, then, when they looked at Cipro, they found that neither the gene presence or absence or expression predicted resistance, but it was actually the SNPs or mutations in these genes that best predicted resistance to Cipro. So this is really cool and certainly a different way of thinking about omics data and predicting resistance. But perhaps the, the disappointing or disheartening part about this, which is very true for Pseudomonas, is in the best case scenario, you can take all this big data, you can use machine learning to help derive algorithms to predict resistance, but in the best case scenario, the sensitivity of predicting resistance with all this data ranged from 81 to 92%. So that means 10 to 20% of isolates, we just can't predict resistance based on all the data we have available to us. So what do we do with this data moving forward? I think this study group is particularly interested in looking at proteomics. Not only is maybe a scenario where you have a stop codon in a gene and then you don't know how much of the protein is made, so can you add proteomics to help improve your predictive value? So that's something that, uh, that we're still missing and is a big challenge. 
But I think the other thing that's important about Pseudomonas and one of the things that was missing from this study is they didn't look at beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors. So when you're thinking about gene presence or absence, you don't know what the impact of adding an inhibitor is in, and we'll be able to be, can we predict resistance to beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations with all this omics data? I think the other thing that's, uh, that's particularly important here is they've correlated all of these omics data to phenotypes based on virulence and biofilm, but ultimately the data we need to any of these characteristics, any of this omics data, do they associate with patient outcomes, right? Can you predict resistance and is that resistance associated with a patient outcome? And perhaps we can find then molecular markers that are not only predictive of patient outcomes, not just virulence in a waxworm model, but perhaps we can find omics data or molecular markers that predict the emergence of resistance, which is a problem we all struggle with in Pseudomonas. So that was kind of my nerd out moment. I really enjoyed that session and, and took a lot away from it. And uh, I thought it was so cool and it was so elegantly presented. I'd encourage everybody to, to go take a look at that symposium online. But Aaron, I want to switch to you. You're chomping at the bit. Your feet are chattering. Your hands are going crazy. <laughs> you cannot wait to nerd out for this podcast. So let me turn the floor over to you. I really can't. You know me. I, well, I'm nerding out over this whole podcast. I think this whole conference is awesome. I think ID is awesome. Also, I forgive you for sharing something you apparently tweeted about because that was really, really interesting data. So thank you, Ryan, for presenting that. Um, but as you know, so probably, ooh, to say my greatest passion, I have a lot of those, but if, infectious diseases in immunocompromised patients is, is definitely my passion and, and where I spend most of my practice. Um, and so I also think it's really neat how antibiotics interplay with everything else that's going on with the patient and how we don't necessarily appreciate that. We focus so much on like, does this antibiotic have activity against this organism? Will it work, quote unquote? But there's so many more things that go into making it work. And, and that most importantly is the patient. And when you have an immunocompromised patient, that just gets even more complex. And so there was a session on Saturday, um, session 23, so SY023, if you're looking online or following along. And the session title is Taking a Pill, a Risky Gesture, Unexpected Effects of Non-Antibiotic Medications on Commensal and Pathogenic Bacteria. And so if you kind of dive into this session, the first talk was about the impact of non-antibiotic drugs on the human gut microbiome. And then the second talk um, was presented by Professor Garriant Rogers of the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. And he actually discussed cancer chemotherapy as a driver of antibiotic resistance. So I'm like heart eye emoji over this session because it's antibiotic, antibiotic resistance, immunocompromised patients, cancer chemotherapy. So I found this fascinating. And he actually did a, an excellent job of walking through some, some older, and by older I mean published five years ago, data. Um, and he really encouraged the audience to think widely about what actually contributes to antibiotic resistance beyond just antibiotic exposure. And that's not something I think we discuss. We know antibiotic exposure is bad. We know it's bad on many levels. Um, and, and the first level is, of course, disrupting the gut microbiome has been shown to increase your risk of drug resistance, increase your risk of bloodstream infections, etc. But then he kind of talked about this 2018 paper by Tamburini and colleagues that was published in Nature Medicine. And it looked at how specifically stem cell transplantation patients, so again, patients exposed to a lot of chemotherapy, um, and it looked at how the gut microbiota actually could be the reservoir for 
bloodstream pathogens, particularly multidrug resistant pathogens and pathogens we may not commonly think of um, as coming from the human host. So pseudomonas, MRSA. And this has implications not only for how we treat these patients, but then like infection prevention, right? Like we're putting Absolutely. flags on these patients, controls on these patients. We're thinking this is coming from their line or from the hospital. And maybe it's coming from the patient. And that's that's crazy. And so does chemotherapy contribute to this dysbiosis and increase our risk of sepsis, increase the risk of multidrug resistant organisms? And this is really hard to tease out in this patient population because a lot of patients with hematologic malignancies are on prophylactic antibiotics. So you're like, is it the chemo? Is it their prophylactic fluoroquinolone? Is it all of the antibiotics they're exposed to in their life? Like, yeah, they're going to have an altered microbiota, but what is it? Um, and so the, to backtrack a little bit, so how would chemo be the cause here? Like how would chemotherapy be resulting in an altered gut microbiota and in microbiological resistance? And the background data here is that obviously antibiotics and chemotherapy both cause DNA damage, right? And so antibiotics are mimicking chemo in that way. And they and bacteria have this SOS response, which is kind of a whole nother topic, but essentially this SOS response recognizes damaged DNA and then derepression of SOS genes, they start to get transcribed, and then they try to fix this DNA damage, but this whole process is error-prone. And yeah. every time there's an error, that leads to some kind of mutation, which then leads to resistance. And so chemotherapy can cause this, bacteria can cause this. Um, and when you see these mutations, so particularly they looked at ciprofloxacin, trimethoprim, um, and sulfamethoxazole, there's a significant SOS response being triggered, and therefore there's an increased likelihood of these error-prone repairs, aka mutations and aka antibiotic resistance. Um, and again, this isn't a coincidence. These are also all the drugs that we use for prophylaxis. Um, and then think about how the bacteria, or I apologize, think about how the antibiotics work and also how chemotherapies work. So quinolones are antibiotics that are targeting topoisomerase. Um, and so if bacteria have mutations in these genes that are associated with the SOS response, that means Cipro exposure is not going to give rise to mutations. Res resistance mutations, but if this SOS response is active, then it will. And chemos work the same way. So atoposide, danarubicin, these are also topoisomerase 2 inhibitors, so exposure can lead to resistance. It all just depends on the interplay with this SOS response. Um, and the same could be true for folate inhibitors, um, like fluorouracil, capecitabine. These are drugs that block thymidyl synthase, so that can drive mutations and lead to the emergence of de novo bacterial resistance. So you have a lot of different classes of chemotherapy that directly or indirectly damage DNA. Platinum-based inhibitors, so they've looked at this with cisplatin that can induce point mutations and also mediate this SOS response. So this is really cool. And so that was all background. And so what this prof professor presented was actually the work of Dr. Lito Papanokoulos. Um, and her work was basically looking at chemotherapy that can alter. They kind of had these two hypotheses. So mm -hmm. the first was chemotherapy can alter the composition of your microbiota. And second, it can then subsequently give rise to de novo antibiotic resistance. And so they looked at this in 16 patients who were chemo naive at first. They did not have hematological malignancies, and they did that on purpose so that they weren't exposed to antibiotic prophylaxis to kind of tease out just the effect of the chemotherapy. They also looked at no patients that had GI tumors or any local pathology because they wanted nothing to confound the impact on the microbiome. Most of the patients they enrolled subsequently got platinum-based therapies, chemotherapies, and what they found was 
the bacterial load and composition of the gut microbiome didn't really change substantially. And so their kind of hypothesis there was that in heme patients and in heme malignancies, this, this kind of, that change is driven more by their antibiotic exposure. But they did find this substantial expansion of Enterobacteriaceae, particularly E. coli, and particularly in patients that started with low prevalence to begin with. They also saw a significant expansion of OQXB and MUXB, which are both multi-drug efflux pumps. And they said so that kind of makes sense because those efflux pumps are probably up-generated because they're trying to get rid of metals of this platinum-based chemotherapy, and then that led to subsequent fluoroquinolone resistance, and so the hosts were then colonized with fluoroquinolone-resistant E. coli. So, And this effect seemed to be far more pronounced with cyclophosphamide-based therapies than platinum-based therapies, but still just, I think, this fascinating concept um, that kind of came out of this. So... In summary, they said that chemotherapy can promote de novo antibiotic resistance by activating this bacterial SOS response. Um, it can precipitate dysbiosis. It allows pathogens to proliferate in the host. And then that in combination with antibiotics, which as we know are also a powerful selector for resistant bacteria, is just kind of like this whole mind-blowing picture and how we need to think about how to treat these patients. And so how do we treat these patients was kind of what they ended with. And I loved this about the session too, is he was like, so this is a big problem. Obviously we need to treat their cancers. They need to receive antibiotics. How do we break this cycle? And then they introduced this concept of FMT. So fecal yeah. microbiota transplantation in immunocompromised hosts. Um, and they even showed that some data from aloe transplant recipients, um, which was actually presented at ID week 2018 as well. And they basically showed the risk of of death or deaths attributable to infection or graft-versus-host disease in these patients um, is about 6 to 8% when these patients have a high microbiota diversity, but over 50% when they have low microbiota wow. diversity. And so, right, that's incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I didn't tweet about this yet. So <laughs> people are hearing about it for the first time. Um, but these data, I just think are like mind-blowingly fascinating. Um, and so it kind of segued into this conversation of like, is it safe to give FMT in these patients? When can we do it? How do we screen the role of bacterial colonization all in harmony with chemotherapies, antibiotics, et cetera? And kind of just as a side note, there was a ton on FMT at ECMID as well. Um, we're probably not going to get into it on this podcast beyond that, but that was definitely a hot topic as well. That was awesome. Like such a cool thing. And it, it just reminds me that really when we're thinking about the microbiome, we're like, we maybe know like the very tip of the iceberg, right? On how the microbiome has this interplay, not only with resistance, but responses to drugs, autoimmune disorders. There's just so much to learn and understand. And I think this is certainly going to be a hot topic at future meetings. But Aaron, we've got a lot to cover and when a lot of cool science was presented. So we need to move on. We do. Oh, wait, but can I quickly mention phages again? Because I mentioned phages like a long time ago, and I said I'd come back to it, so I can't like not give people All right. phage therapy. All right, Aaron. Okay, so another, we don't really have time to get into it. I promise I'll keep this brief, but FMT was a big topic. Lots of stuff. If you search the ecmidlive.org, you can see stuff on FMT. And then phage therapy. So there was a two-hour session on Monday, which was Symposium 177, and it was called Phage Therapies Coming of Age, Progress Towards the Application of Bacteriophages in the Treatment of Infectious Diseases. And so we're not going to discuss on this podcast because all of these, uh, all of the different sessions 
of this whole session are actually available online. So you can watch all of these videos. But the first one says how to build a phage. The second one walks through predicting response to phage therapy. And then the third is obviously the significant barriers associated with the widespread use of bacteriophages. But I think increasingly, this is going to be something we see. We actually used phages at UPMC in like my first couple months here. And I was like, this is cool science. Um, and so check that out as well. Yeah, so um, in hindsight, maybe creating a segment called Nerding Out About ECMID <laughs> is a bad idea for Aaron. Don't make me take that microphone away. I know. I could honestly talk for hours, but I'm, I'm better now. I'm better. I All promise. right. Okay. Really, we're going to move on, and I want to move on now to some rapid-fire kind of formats where we have so much information to cover. Let's try and do some quick hitters on some really important takeaways that we think have an important impact on some of the clinicians that are listening. Okay. Rapid. We'll go quick. Um, okay. As we move into this rapid fire session, Ryan and I are going to talk about big themes and posters and topics. Um, and we're largely presenting data that has only been presented thus far in abstract form or as a poster or as an oral presentation, but again, all derived just from the abstract. So none of these data are final for the most part. Some There are some published and we'll, we'll refer you to the publications if they exist. Um, but if they're not published, that means they also haven't been peer reviewed beyond the peer review submission of, of the abstract review to the conference. And so while they're amazing data, we're gonna try to talk about trends and implications. We are not giving definitive therapy recommendations just as a disclaimer, because again, these are all largely posters that stood out to us at ECMID. I think the one we should start with is a poster about the Merino trial. And so Ryan, you mentioned the Merino trial, Merino trial briefly at the beginning, um, but that was the thing that came out of ECMID last year was Merino at the late breakers. And then that data was subsequently published later in the year. Um, and so the authors came back to ECMID this year with another poster with kind of follow-up data on Merino. And so I think everyone is very, very interested in Piptazo versus Mirapenem for the treatment of ESBLs. Ryan, can you kind of fill us in on that poster? Yeah, you're right, Aaron. Merino was the holy crap moment of ECMID 2018. Um, and, and we've spent then from that moment, really the next year, really critically analyzing this study and almost maybe overanalyzing it because there's been a lot of critiques brought up about this study. But in case you've been hiding under a rock, let me remind you what Merino is. This is a randomized controlled study comparing piperacillin tazobactam to meropenem for the treatment of ceftriaxone-resistant enterobacteriaceae, otherwise known as really ESBLs. They, uh, they randomized 391 patients and overall 378 were assessed um, and they were randomized equally to meropenem versus piptazo. And this study was eventually stopped early because of the data safety and monitoring board that said, hey, it does not make sense to continue to randomize patients because there is very clearly higher mortality among patients that received piperacillin and tazobactam compared to meropenem based on a 30-day all-cause mortality primary endpoint. So, Moving now into ECMID 2019, there was a poster presented. It's poster number 2468, 2468. And this is really getting into the, some of these subgroup analyses and addressing some of these critiques about Merino that we've heard about over the last year. So to summarize some of these critiques, number one is, well, hey, it looks like patients were able to be on empiric antibiotics for up to 72 hours before they got randomized for meropenem versus piperacillin tazobactam. And as one of the lead authors of this study, David Patterson, said, 
we don't care about that critique. We wanted to study definitive therapy, and that was the entire purpose of this study is to look at what you would do as a clinician when you get these results back from your microbiology lab. Should you be changing patients that were empirically on piptazo to meropenem at that point, even though you're 72 hours into the treatment? And certainly these data suggest that we should do that. A second important critique of, of Marino was, well, you did all-cause mortality, and a significant proportion of the deaths weren't related to infection-related attributable mortality. And again, this is kind of a, well, who cares thing? Patients are dying, and maybe the infection is just one of the factors that tips them over the edge, although they may die from renal failure or other causes. So certainly the all-cause mortality is a fair way, and particularly in a randomized controlled trial, it's hard to get preference one way or the other. Certainly the higher mortality is important regardless of whether it's directly related to infection or not. And let's be honest, none of us is going to be very good at defining attributable mortality in these kinds of cases. The third major critique is the one that we're going to talk about in a bit of detail, and that's the piperacillin tazobactam MICs in this study. So an important caveat as you're reading through the Marino study, which was published in JAMA of last year, is that the MICs were determined on-site at the local microbiology laboratory, which makes sense, right? You need to define whether these isolates are ceftriaxin resistant at the local laboratory before you can randomize patients. And for the most part, most of the study sites across this, uh, across this multinational study use Vitec. And so the isolates then were tested by Vitec, they were deemed to be piperacillin tazobactam susceptible, and they were sent to a central laboratory for further confirmation. At the central laboratory, what they did is they got more than 80% of the isolates um, from both groups, meropenem and piperacillin tazobactam, and the first thing they did is they tested all the isolates by e-test. And these are the data that you'll see published in the JAMA paper. These are the e-test susceptibility data. And again, the critique is, well, there's not a clear association with piperacillin tazobactam MICs and outcome like you would suspect. You would suspect as the piptazo MICs go up, you should see higher rates of mortality, and that wasn't true. Well, subsequent to the e-test that appeared in the paper, um, broth microdilution was subsequently performed, and we all know that this is the gold standard way to do drug susceptibility testing. So all the data I tell you from this point forward is going to be based on this idea of broth microdilution as the most accurate way of defining susceptibility, particularly to piptazo. And the reason why this is so important is what we know now about Vitec as well as e-test is these tend to overcall susceptibility to piperacillin tazobactam. So many isolates that may test, in fact, resistant by broth microdilution may have been called susceptible by Vitec at the local laboratory or even subsequently by e-test uh, when these went to the central lab. But a couple of the major takeaways here is that if you look at the MIC distributions, you see that uh, whether you define the breakpoint for piptazo based on the CLSI criteria of less than or equal to 8, um, you know that 8.7% of patients in the piperacillin tazobactam arm died if the MIC was less than or equal to 8, compared to 25% of patients that had MICs, isolates that had MICs greater than, um, greater than 8. So certainly a dichotomous difference, 8.7% versus 25%. Similarly, if you use the UCAS breakpoint of 16, less than or equal to 16 isolates, the mortality was 11% versus 50% if the MIC was greater than 16. So certainly this suggests, well, there is in fact maybe an association with outcome to MIC if the isolate's resistant. But we're really focused in on, well, what about if the isolate truly is susceptible, even by your gold standard method of broth microdilution, is piperacillin tazobactam still inferior to meropenem? And I think to me, one of the biggest take-home points of, oh, from this study, if you look at broth microdilution MICs and you take your conservative outcome, your conservative cutoff of less than or equal to eight, 
the mortality rate among those patients is still 8.7%. And you compare that to meropenem, where the overall mortality was only 3.7%. So even among isolates that had very low piptazo MICs, they still had higher rates of death compared to meropenem. So certainly I think this disproves this idea that maybe patients had more resistant isolates in one group over the other. Um, I believe these data, and I think certainly meropenem seems to be a better drug for, for ESBLs, not only based on the rebuttal from a lot of the critiques that have been received, but also based on this MIC outcome analysis that was presented. Um, clearly it looks like meropenem is superior regardless of what the piptazo MIC was. Thanks, Ryan, for reviewing those data. I think that is really important information. Another critique of Merino was the dose. And so they used 4.5 grams Q8 hours of Zosin over 30-minute infusions, which begged the question for clinicians and researchers that have been exploring beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors for ESBL infections of would higher doses or would prolonged infusions or extended infusions of piptazo have made a difference here compared to 4.5 Q8 over 30 minutes? And really what we need to know and, and what I don't think we have answered yet is what is the optimal dose and exposure of not only piperacillin but very importantly of tazobactam that we need to treat ESBL infections? But Dr. Patterson stated at ECMID that for this trial at this time, their goal was to be pragmatic. They were exploring this question in a real world where most people are using 4.5 Q8 over 30 minutes. And that's what most centers were giving, and that's the dose that they studied. And so I think that made a lot of sense for this trial. He also gave a nod to the fact that the BLING-3 study, which BLING stands for Beta-Lactam Infusion Study Group, is currently enrolling. And so they weren't going to explore two questions at once. The BLING-3 study goal is, again, this is a randomized control prospective trial, and their goal is to enroll 7,000 patients in 70 ICUs worldwide um, to look at continuous infusion beta-lactams. And I think I saw recently an announcement that they've actually already enrolled 1,000 patients. Wow, just incredible. Yeah, isn't that so amazing? And and this is kind of that same school of thought that if we get a bunch of like-minded people together, we can do these huge, large trials and answer these very important clinical questions. But more to come on Bling 3 in Episode 3. We'll be giving... Ha, 3, 3. We didn't even plan that. Um, but we'll be giving... We'll be diving a lot into PKPD in that episode as we segue from Bling 3 into other discussions. And in Episode 3, we'll also be giving microbiology updates from UCAST. So stay tuned. More to come. And thanks to all y'all for listening to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. To our listeners, too, remember that you can get BCIDP or Board Certified Infectious Diseases Pharmacotherapy credit on the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists website if you are looking for that credit. Thanks. Catch you all in Episode 3.